On today's episode of The Audible, Bruce and I talk about our top 25 coaches rankings that went up on The Athletic this week, and we answer your questions in the mailbag. That's coming up next on The Audible. Presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman, and uh, we have a, a special episode for you tied to a special set of columns that we put out on the Athletic on Thursday. Stu, I think this this argument that we have been having for our top 25 coaches, I started doing it last year. Uh, you've been doing it for many years, and I think it felt. I feel like it kind of grew out of you would post this, and then I, as I'm not always proud to do, but I feel like I nitpick your stuff, and I did. And I feel like the part where it started was I think you had at one point Clay Helton in the top fifteen, and no, that was never that never ever happened. But top twenty five somewhere, and. I think we went down the list and you were like, well, you would have him in your top 40, wouldn't you? And I was like, oh, I don't know. And I I feel like that was like the put up or shut up. So I needed to do my list. Uh, I do remember that now. Yeah, you would you would constantly go on there and criticize my coaches list. I said, well, why don't you do one then? And we did them both for the first time last year. And now we have one this year. And I think, you know, before we get into some specific names, I think we both noticed that what I refer to as kind of a brain drain in the coaching profession right now because there are so many guys who just in the last couple of years, two, two years ago, right, you would have had Urban Meyer in your top 10, Chris Peterson in your top 10. I know I had Mark D'Antonio in my top 10, and none of them are in college football anymore. You've got other people like Gary Patterson and David Shaw who have have been very highly ranked, at least in mine in the past, who have fallen on hard times recently. So you also had a guy who would have been in our probably top 15, maybe even top 10, Matt Rule, go to the NFL. That's exactly right. So for me, the top six or seven, probably top seven, were pretty easy. And then it was just like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> like, I've got a list here. I've got more than 25 names I'd love to have on the list. But I don't know that any of these I want to put number nine or number 10. So um, what, before we get into these names... And we're not going to go through the whole list, but hit some of the highlights. How do you go about doing this? Because for me, I, I've been pretty consistent through the years in saying that it's not a career achievement award. Um, and this goes back to, I mean, I first started doing these when Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno were still coaching. But it was pretty obvious at that time they were no longer among the top coaches in the sport. So I wouldn't have them in there. It's not a career achievement award. Uh, and I wait recent performance pretty heavily with a, in particular focus on the past three seasons. Cause I think that tells you more about who the best coaches are today rather than let's say of the 2010s. Uh, for me, it, it's, it's a, it's pretty much everything I can, can think of. And for instance, uh, Jim Harbaugh really did a terrific job in the NFL. I think that does, I, I think about that when I think of how good of a coach he is. As the 49ers were spinning their wheels when he took over, and he got them into a Super Bowl, and he got them good right away. Uh, I think of the impact Mike Leach has had on the sport of football. 
It's not just he won a lot of games, but he has had a profound impact on how the sport is played. I think Chip Kelly has had a profound impact on how the sport has played and how people schedule. And I'm not talking about like who you play on your schedule. I'm talking about how teams prepare and the sports performance piece of that. So I think those are those are also elements in that. Just like um, I don't know how I didn't count up how many non-power five you guys had, but I do think you know we we look at it and say okay, what was the situation this coach took over? What did they do there? Um, and to me, it's not necessarily all about that. I, one thing I I'm kind of dicey on is oh this guy had nine top ten ranked recruiting classes. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's about what you do on the field more than, you know, how you recruit. Now, if it leads to that, that's great. But um, so it's kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a moving target. And then what I end up doing is I really look and say, okay, I start slotting guys. And then over the course of a couple of plane flights and downtime, I start moving them around, say, how does this look? Or do I think this person over that person? And invariably, they'll be like, like what I think you do, where you probably have three or four or six guys. You're like, man, this guy's not going to make my list. And, you know, so here we are. I, I thought, you know, like when, when I looked at your list, when you sent it over to me earlier tonight, I was like, there was one that kind of surprised me because I was like, wow, you have this coach way further down than I do. And I don't know if you're wrong. Um, you know, it's just like, I think, I feel like I could defend most of these. And that's how I wrote the text around it. But um you know, I'm interested to hash it out with you. Okay, so we have the same top two, Nick Saban, Dabo Swinney. You put Saban one, Swinney two. I, I feel like they are equals at this point, so I just say one A and one B. Uh, and then and then this one, so you've been higher on this coach than me probably for, I don't know, going on three years at this point. I'm pretty high on him. He's in my top ten now, but you have him number three, and that's James Franklin. Okay, so it's interesting because when I looked at what you wrote about James Franklin, where you have him number seven, uh, you don't mention at all what he did at Vanderbilt. And when I think of James Franklin, I think that's a big piece of why he's as high up as he is. And when he took over James, when he took over Vanderbilt, it was his first head coaching job, and they had been horrific for a very, very long time. He was there three years and had two top 25 finishes. Vanderbilt hadn't been in the top 25 in over 60 years before he got there. And after he left, they've been pretty bad again. They have had six straight losing seasons under Derek Mason. So, And then he gets to Penn State. And look, I think I think Bill O'Brien did a good job of laying the foundation and, and building them back up. But it was heavy sanctions, and it didn't take him long to win the Big Ten. And he's in a loaded division in the Big Ten, by the way. And I just think, you know, people can say, okay, well, he's made some 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 just in-game decisions that they they're in, you know apoplectic about. But when you look at what he's done um, at Penn State and certainly at Vanderbilt. It's hard for me to find five coaches better than him. You know, it's interesting because the coach you have number three is a coach I'm probably most familiar with. And I have Ogeron number four. And I wouldn't be surprised if some people are like, how could you have Ed Ogeron number four? But I still think even though he won a, just won a national title and ran through probably as tough a schedule as anybody's ever had to go through to win a national title, 
I think there's people who are going to go, well, he had Joe Burrow. Well, never mind that he was the one who took Joe Burrow. <laughs> or he had Joe Brady. Well, he was the only one who's going to hire Joe Brady. So I think you got to give him credit for those things. And so um, what it came down to me between Franklin and Ogeron was just, like I said, Franklin, I think, has done a terrific job at two places. I don't. I think Penn State is still trending upward. You know, I think it was a close call between the two for me. I mean, look, Franklin's never been in a playoff. Ogeron, you know, has has done a remarkable job at, at LSU, and and I could see why you have him third. Yeah, I don't think it's automatic. I don't think you like. Hey, he just won the national title. He's got to be right after Dab- uh, Saban and Dabo. Um, but when I looked at not just this past season, but over the last few seasons at LSU. 12 and 3 against top 10 opponents. It was more than just this one season with Joe Brady. So, um, yeah, and it's 11 and 1 actually in the last 12 against top 10. That's amazing. That, that's, I mean, yeah. to, to put it, that's Saban esque. So, uh, well, so I have a, I have a, um, I wasn't planning to do this, but a listener question because he addressed it to me. But given you're even higher on James Franklin, I think you should answer it. The subject from uh, James in Seoul, Korea, Harbaugh versus Franklin. I understand skepticism about Jim Harbaugh, but Stu seems to be much higher in James Franklin. Even starting from 2016, conveniently leaving out Franklin's worst two years at the beginning and four losses to Ohio State and Michigan, their overall records and recruiting rankings are very close. They're tied head-to-head. Stu thinks Harbaugh is what he is at this point, but somehow Franklin appears to be on the rise, even though he's been there longer. I don't get it. One win over Ohio State four years ago that was pretty lucky, by the way, and a couple more wins overall seem to be the only substantial differences. Okay, so look, I think there is some 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 parallels here. Jim Harbaugh did an amazing job. You remember how horrible Stanford was, and in four years, not only did he beat Pete Carroll, but he had uh, he won a BCS Bowl. I thought he did an amazing job there. I, I, I thought about this. I think I had a conversation with our friend Max Olson in the last week about this about. Harbaugh is defined by the arch rivalry against the only school that really matters if you're the Michigan coach. He has not won it the last two years. He hasn't been close. They've been blowouts. The game where there is the, where is the questionable ruling um, of the first down or not, or the distance, if he has somehow wins that game, I think we think of Jim Harbaugh's run at Michigan completely different. But the fact that he has not beaten them I think holds very heavy Uh, to say that James Franklin or Penn state was lucky. You know, I don't want to hear about lucky. You, you won the game or you didn't win the game. Right. So he did win that game. It was a huge win for him at the time, because at that time, a lot of people were really going "Eh." you know, they, I think they were down that he wasn't Bill O'Brien and what was, you know, they were frustrated with, with a lot of things there. That was a program changing win. And you know, he backed it up. He won the Big Ten title. So he has accomplished some things that Jim Harbaugh just hasn't accomplished there. I mean, if you'd ask me, I think Vandy is a tougher place to win at than Stanford. Uh, and so I would, you know, as great a job as Jim Harbaugh did at Stanford, I would think what James Franklin did, especially considering that till last year, David Shaw kept winning at Stanford, whereas as soon as James Franklin left, it was like back to sucking at, at Vanderbilt. The people who are down on James Franklin or think we're overrating him, I think I don't really understand given how much coverage the Penn State Jerry Sandusky story got. 
why it's kind of now forgotten in history how severe those sanctions were that James Franklin walked into. It wasn't like, I mean, those sanctions came down in 2012. He got there in 2014. Now, they ended up ending the bull ban two years early, but the damage had been done in recruiting and from scholarships. So for them to go, for him to go from that to winning the Big Ten two years later, uh, and then if you look over the past four seasons, he's won 11 games three of the past four years. In a really, really tough division, by the way. Do you way. know how many times Jim Harbaugh has won 11 games at Michigan? Zero. Zero. Yeah. So, yes, they've had some, you know, on the field, if you're just going solely by the times when they've coached against each other, it's been very even. But if you're looking at what each has accomplished over their tenure there, I don't think it's particularly close. Um, the Vanderbilt thing... Well, I'll get into this a little bit with some of the other coaches, but I think basically, look, when I first started doing, um, after Harbaugh got hired at Michigan, I, I think I had him as high as third or fourth yeah, in the country. Yeah, I, I would have had because him of what he, he did yeah. at Yeah, because of what he did at Stanford and the 49ers. And then as time has gone on, and his Michigan run just has not been as And by the way, his first year was those. his first year was a lot better than I think most people thought it was going to be at Michigan. He, well, I was the, that was, I always say, and, I, and I'm sure... I'm going to be getting flooded with Harbaugh comments for not having... I don't have him in there. You don't have him in there at all, do you? No. Well, I didn't have him in there last year, so I don't know why he would have worked his way in. Um, I, what I always say is, okay, t- 25 out of 130, it's the top 20% of coaches in the country. You would... To, to qualify for that, you have to me, you have to be regularly exceeding expectations relative to the job you're at. And that, you know, that tends to favor overachiever types, right? Like... You know, guys who are winning at a high level at schools that don't usually win. But even at the powerhouse programs, um, you know, you, I mean, Saban is obviously on here. Like, Kirby Smart is high up here. Um, Harbaugh, that first season, I guess you would say he exceeded expectations, but not as a whole. I mean, he was hired and with all that fanfare, and he has one of the highest salaries in the country to win Big Ten titles and play for national championships, and he hasn't come to that he hasn't done it so that that's my reasoning there fair enough um i want to ask you about this one and again this is what i alluded to earlier in the podcast um there was a coach that i have pretty high up i have at number six and i looked for him and looked for him and you have him all the way down at number 14 and that is jimbo fisher who's right here (laughs) <laughs> Jimbo Fisher was the hardest one for me uh, because of what I said earlier. If you're going like more long-term, bigger picture, career achievement, whatever you want to call it, he's a national championship coach. There's, I think you can, what, how many national championship coaches are there right now? Five? Mac Brown's in there. Les Miles are in there. All right. We've added them back in. Um, so that alone, and then of course, just the whole run or, uh, or most of the run at Florida State was at a very high level, but the last three seasons that Jimbo Fisher has been a head coach, five and six at Florida State, he left town before the, the last game, nine and four his first year at AM, eight and five his second year at AM. Those are his last three seasons. It just at this point, I feel like he has to earn his way back into the top 10. I can't just, because I had him, I think, sixth or seventh last year, I can't just keep him there on the promise of $75 million contract, great recruiting classes it's coming at any moment we don't know if it is maybe it will maybe they'll they'll break out and have a 10 11 win type season this year and we'll all remember why Jimbo got this reputation in the first place but right now in I mean who has accomplished more in the last three years him or Kyle Whittingham 
I'm not going to argue with Kyle Whittingham. I actually have him in my top 10. You have him 11. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I'm looking. Like You have a couple of names in there. I was like, whoa. You have Bill Clark in the top 10. And that surprised me. Now, look, I know it's a really tough job. He's done a one, he's worked some wonders there. Um, but that still surprised me to see him in the top 10. Do you have Bill Clark in your top 25? I do not. All right. Well, that's a pretty. So there's two, I believe, two guys who one of us has in the top 10 or very close to it. And for you, you it's Gary Patterson, number 11, who the other person doesn't have at all. You took Gary Patterson completely out of there? Yep. Gary Patterson has, again, kind of like D'Antonio, Shaw. He was, he was just a default top 10 for, pick for me uh, for many, many years, and nobody could question what a tremendous run he's had at TCU. But over the last four seasons, I mean, they've been— Well, he had one, one really good year in there. Yeah, so the last— um, Three of the last four have been shaky. 2016, 6, and 7. 2017, 11, and 3. 2018, 7 and 6, 2019, 5 and 7. So, again, if you're talking about best coaches in the sport right now, um, I think Gary Patterson has kind of lost that benefit of the doubt. I mean, I, you know, a good question for you would be okay, if you feel like, you know, Gary Patterson has accomplished so much that even with these last couple of down years, he should still be number 11. Okay, I can, I can buy that. If Mark D'Antonio hadn't retired, where would you have him? Because I feel like they're kind of similar. Um, I would have Mark D'Antonio somewhere in the back end of the top 25. But he has, to me, um, Mark D'Antonio is a little, was running on more fumes than, I feel like Gary Patterson's still close to on top of his game. And I can't dismiss this. Like, I was looking back at this. He's had seven top 10 finishes since that same stretch, A&M and Texas, which have way better resources than 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 TCU, has had, that's have had two less top ten finishes than TCU. Yeah, I I I don't feel like people have thrown in the towel on Gary Patterson like they had. To me, to me, this is not less miles we're talking about here. I think Gary Patterson still has his fastball. I saw Gary Patterson flat out out coach Tom Herman in a game we did earlier this earlier this year last season I guess it is now um, that was the high point of their season it actually was they had picked off Sam uh, Ellinger four times and again I, I think some of it was they've had some real challenges on offense and I don't know I, I'm so I was surprised I didn't even realize you didn't have them in there I mean so for frame of reference in 2018 I had Gary Patterson number five in the country Last year, I had him number nine. You think he just forgot how to coach? I don't think he's forgotten how to coach, but I, I'm discouraged to see. Like, you keep saying he's still at the top of his game, but they've actually gotten worse. Last year was their first uh, losing season in, I think, since, what, his first year in the Big 12? Second year in the Big 12, maybe? I mean, it's, it's, he's got to get the, you know, he's got to get a productive quarterback. Um, He's still where he is still on top of his game for the most part is defense every single year. That's it. He's he's as good as there is at this. You're going to wake up on Friday morning when this podcast is up and running, and it's going to get a, a DM that's just going to say GFY. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, other than the two years of Trevon Boykin, they've been pretty shaky on offense. Now he made some interesting staff changes this year. It'll be interesting to see if they can get it going again next year. Jerry Kill is there now, 
as like an offensive coordinator who's not an on-field coach. He's in charge of the offense, but he's not one of the on-field coaches. And then um, this is fascinating to me. You remember those great years of Trevon Boykin. It was co-OCs, uh, Doug Meacham, Sonny Cumbie. Sonny Cumbie has been there throughout. Doug Meacham is back, but not as a co-OC, as a position coach. By the way, from looking at my list compared to yours, it really dawned on me that I am much more bigger picture than you you seem to be way more fluid in your rankings yeah i move people around quite a bit from year to year um like i said it's i mean you just drop them way like honestly i thought i was going to drop gary patterson further than i did i think i dropped him two or three spots from last year um i thought i was going to drop him like six or seven spots you know i just didn't make big sweeping moves at first i would say for a while i would try to say don't overreact too much to one one bad season uh, and I, I try to do that, but at the same time, this is a sport where if you have two bad seasons, you get fired. Um, people, people's perceptions of, of these coaches change pretty rapidly. So I think that it's, my, my rankings are fluid, um, kind of accordingly, right? Like if, if Gary Patterson has another bad season this year, he's not going to be in your top 25 next year. You have Jeff Munkin at 17. He just went five and eight. Well, I had him even higher last year. I know, but it's not like I th- I'm surprised you still had him because he went five and eight. And it's not like Jeff Munkin has had like seven great years there. He's had, you know, three ter- you know, three really good seasons. But it's not like, you know, he's had this Gary Patterson run and then he goes five and eight and you still have him seventeen. That surprises me a little. Yeah, bit. it seems pretty clear in our conversation here that that I'm more micro focused on the past three or four years, and you're maybe. You, you continue to view guys from a from a more bigger picture perspective, and that's fine. I had Jeff Monk at number 11 last year. It still is a remarkable, remarkable turnaround. Uh, they average, for, for about two decades there, they averaged three wins a year. Then from 2016 to 2018, they go 8 and 5, 10 and 3, 11 and 2. They had a setback year this past year, there's no question about it. And, and frankly, it was it was puzzling from a distance. Because we all watched that Michigan game where they took them to overtime, and then they end up going five and eight. But uh, I, I, I wasn't I wasn't going to drop them out of the top twenty five because of that. You know what surprised me? I was surprised how high you have Mario Cristobal. You have him at thirteen. Um, I think I have him at twenty three or twenty four. But my rationale was he really. I mean, I think he's done a good job and he's recruited well. But he's really had he had one really good season, and it was last year. I was surprised. I thought you know you follow him in that program very closely. I I'm not sure where I thought you'd have him, but I, I definitely thought it'd be higher than barely in the top 25. Yeah, I just it was for me it was hard because I I think he's gonna have a really good year this year, and I think he has a top 10 team there, and you know they won a Rose Bowl, but I don't. I mean it was really the year before that we did their bowl game, and it wasn't like a you know. An amazing, you know, it wasn't like a an amazing turnaround there. So he's kind of the king of the Pac-12 right now. Um, but look, I mean, I have Kyle Whittingham two spots higher than him, even though they crushed Utah in the bowl game. I mean, in the Pac-12 championship, and Utah still hasn't won the Pac-12 like Cristobal just did. But there's one where you have to kind of take into account the longer track record. Kyle Whittingham's been winning and winning consistently there for a long time. Cristobal is 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 uh, more recent. I was struggling to find 
people for the nine and ten spots or eleven spots, but I have Whittingham nine, and I found a stat that is really I think illuminates just how great a job he's done there. He's had two top five finishes and seven top twenty five finishes in the history of the school before he took over. They only had two other top twenty five finishes, and one would have been the year before with Urban. Urban, right? Actually, I want I think both years he would have been in the top twenty five. Uh, I thought there might have been a McBride year, but okay. maybe not. A guy that we both seem to be pretty bullish on is Scott Satterfield. You have him 10th. Um, I, I have him 18th. I did. He's one of the. There's a, there's a group in there from about 15 to 19, 20, 21 maybe, that I moved around quite a bit. Um, Mark Stoops was in that group. I was surprised you had him as high as you did. I think Mark Stoops is starting to. You know, it was one thing after that one ten and three season to to say. I remember I debated whether to have him in there or not last year, but now you see what he followed it up with, with basically one hand tied behind his back with a receiver playing quarterback. Here's my question on Mark Stoops, though: was I I was on the fence with him, and then I looked and I was like, he's been there for seven seasons, and he's only had one year where they had a winning record in the SEC, and they're in the easier side. Um, so I think he's done a really good job there and he's gotten it. It's just like at that point, I was like, you either had to have done something great, uh, and made playoff runs or something, or you've had to, I think, I think he's outperformed where he's at, but I don't think he's like outperformed. Like what Satterfield did last year was pretty amazing. I remember going there in the off season and knew how horrible that, uh, what Petrino left behind and to turn it around like that. And he had already done a really good job at App State. So I was comfortable with him there. But again, I, I mean, some of these are, you know, like, I mean, I look and it's like, I feel like we have PJ Fleck in roughly the same spot. You know, we have some of these where there's quite a bit of overlap. I think you had Paul Christ higher than I did. And, you know, where, where I said earlier, you had um, some group of five guys. I have Lance Leipold from Buffalo at 20, you know, so. Yeah, you may be grading Mark Stoops on a bit of a harsh curve there. Um, it's Kentucky. It's Kentucky football. No, I get it. I in get fact, it. In fact, the stat you just brought up about um, only one winning season in the SEC, you remember Rich Brooks? You think of him, you know, the run. he had a, a decent run there the year where they, you know, there was a year where they beat uh, LSU and LSU was number one and they were in the top 25. Uh, Rich Brooks never had a winning record in the SEC, and in fact, he finished. He did have one, four straight bowl seasons, which is great. But he finished his time there sixteen and forty in the SEC play. Um, Stoops a little bit better than that, twenty and thirty-six. So it's a tough, tough job. I think he's earned a lot of respect over the last couple of years. Um, Fair enough. You want to uh, you want to set the stage for the big Kirk Ferentz news? Okay, so I'm reading how you wrote this, and I'm not surprised to see him in there. I did not realize the history you had with Kirk Ferentz. Yeah, Iowa fans have never forgiven me for my history. So I've only done a worst coaches list a few times, and I always regretted it after the fact. Because, what was why? What was the rationale on that? Well, it would have been like that was when it wasn't even its own column. That wasn't just a mailbag. Somebody would ask like five best and five worst. And by five worst, I meant like 
I mean, I remember Carl Durrell was in there when he was at UCLA, and Al Groh when he was at Virginia, and like guys who were Chan Gailey, like kind of underwhelming Power Five coaches. And in 2013, and I only think I only brought it back for one year. Uh, Kirk Ferentz was coming off a four and eight season. They pretty much like, I mean, that program had had fallen into a rut, and so and he was you know kind of known for the big ridiculous contract. So yes, I put him in there, and immediately regretted just doing the list at all because it always becomes a story it shouldn't be a story it shouldn't be beat writers shouldn't have to be writing about who Stuart mandel ranked as one of the worst coaches but that that is exactly what happened and then he had a pretty came back the next year and had a pretty decent year now for most of the last however many years there's been just a complete split on him in terms of half the fan base reveres him and thinks is just so glad to have him and look at what he's done over the 20 something years and half the fan base is frustrated when they uh keep going a seven and six or eight and five or whatever it's been i did think their team two years ago um you had that northwestern iowa game where um i think that's how northwestern won the division that year i think or or at least was a big like there were iowa should have been much better that year they had two first round tight ends that being said, what I came to realize when I sat down to do this list is that, you know what, that rut I was in uh, at the time that I did that, he has... By the way, those two first-round tight ends, nobody else really wanted TJ Hawkinson. He wasn't like this. I mean, give a credit to them for developing players and not like just... Well, they do a great job of developing players. The problem was from 2010 to 2014, they weren't really doing much with those players. Uh, during that period, they went... Uh, 19 and 21 in the Big Ten. So it was hard for me. So there was no um, reason for me to be considering him for top 25 coaches. He was a sub 500 Big Ten coach. Then 2015, they have the Rose Bowl season. Then they go 8 and 5, 8 and 5, 9 and 4, 10 and 3. Now, here we are, five years later. They've gone 29 and 15 in the Big Ten the last five years. And as our Iowa writer Scott Doctorman fed to me, 47 overall wins tie them for ninth nationally over the last five years. So I'm here to just officially uh, do my 180. Kirk Ferentz is now a top 25 coach. Have you ever dealt with Kirk Ferentz, by the way? Just a little bit. I haven't had a lot of reason to to kind of to go. Th- I can't remember the last time I was there. It was a long time ago. might have been the uh, Ricky Stanzi days. My um, a little aside to this. Iowa is one of my favorite places to go for a football game. It's it's not easy for me to get to, but it's very there's a charm and there's a coziness there. And Kirk Ferentz became one of like my favorite coaches to deal with. I and I had when I say I had no relationship with him, it wasn't like I had a bad one. I just didn't really know him. And then when you sit down with him, at least on the TV side for these production meetings, nobody is better than them. He is engaging and extremely warm and just he's really almost impossible not to like when you when you leave there um to be clear i never not liked him as a person that's okay Okay. (laughs) i wasn't saying that well no but people wasn't accusing you i'm trying to yeah dr man did a story for us i think um probably last winter you know 14 months ago and it was basically doing an interview in ferentz's office and i was like yeah this is this is him it kind of gave a window into that, um, and I could, you know, I can totally see why lots of coaches really respect him because I just think there's a, there's just a, a, a uh, 
I don't know, I'm not describing it great, but he's very engaging and he's very warm and and I'd be lying if I didn't say I don't, you know, think of him slightly it's hard to you know, it's if you there's somebody you really respect, you'd probably weigh that in a certain way. So Yep. They uh first of all, you, you they it is very warm and hospitable. And in fact, Iowa has as I'm in my recollection, Iowa has the best press press box spread, press box meal uh, in college football. They they want to um, feed you. They want you to, to to go away talking about the great food in Iowa City. Um, and and if you want to get a great deal on like a dozen shots of Jameson, you can go to Donnelly's Pub and it'll cost you next to nothing to do it. So. There you go. That's that's the kind of intel you only get from Bruce Feldman. And of course, they now have. Our favorite tradition in college football. I know it's only like a few year old tradition, but the wave at the end of the first quarter to the children's hospital next to the stadium. So just, just, uh, just, just everything is coming up Iowa these days. And um, now we are, uh, now we both have them in that list. Um, speaking of the state of Iowa, I think we're both pretty bullish on Matt Campbell. You seem to be more bullish on him than me. I, I mean, they had a disappointing season last year, and I didn't want to dump him out of the top 25 by any means, but there were a few names that it got to the end, and I was like, gosh, am I going to run out of room for him? I kind of want to put my, I mean, I've always had Mike Gundy in here. Am I really not going to have room for him? Did Chris, you not have room for Gundy? I did not. Chris Kleiman, I considered strongly, but I did not leave Matt Campbell out. I have him 25th. Oh, you have him 25. I thought you had him at 20. Here's a great oh. Matt Campbell stat. He is now... Ha- led Iowa State to three straight winning seasons in the Big 12. In the 21 seasons they were in that conference, before that they had had just one winning season ever. By the way, another stat on him, he is 3-2 and two, uh, against top 10 opponents in the past three years, and he was came within a two-point conversion in our game at Oklahoma of being 4-1. and one. It's pretty good. That, all that being said, this is what surprised me. You have him 16th. Fair enough. Okay, one spot behind P.J. Fleck, two spots behind Dan Mullen. But you have him three spots ahead of a guy, Paul Christ, who, since going to Wisconsin, is 52-16, and 34-10 in the Big Ten, has played in the Big Ten title game three times in the last four years, and he has his 772 conference winning percentage is actually pretty much higher, pretty higher than, you know, Brett Bielham actually won the conference three times, but his winning percentage in conference over his tenure was 660. Why is Matt Campbell a better coach than Paul Christ? Because when you look at it, Paul Christ got there in 2015. I think he's done a really good job. But in the years before that, it was 11 wins, 9 wins, 8 wins, 11, 11, 10. And then a decade before, you know, like there was a 12 win, a 10 win. And by the way, the division they're in got easier um in the last five years so i mean i have them in there but just it's not like it's it's a gauntlet that they're in 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 that side of it so and they were they've been they're really good now they were really good before like bielema won 40 games in his last four years there yeah well that's what i was kind of getting at is it's easy i think he probably gets overlooked and in fact he got overlooked by me last year i didn't have him in there at all when they're Wait, so I'm I'm not sure what you're saying. Are you you think I am too low at 19, or you're just apoplectic that I have Matt Campbell ahead of him? <laughs> I have Paul Chris ninth. You have him nineteenth. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, there's okay. maybe I'm too high. Maybe you're too low. 
I just uh, was surprised, given that I almost ran out of room entirely for Matt Campbell, that you have him in the middle and you, like, I, I just don't think there's any argument for him to be ahead of Paul Christ. Like, we're talking about going eight and five, seven and six. I just have a ton of respect for him. I mean, it's Iowa State. I just don't think you'd expect him to play. I mean, by the way, even when they don't win, they're like in every game. They don't like it blown out like all the time or anything like that. It's just, I don't know. Again, I'm I, that's a program I've covered a decent amount, and I just feel like I've seen it inside, and I know how hard they play for him. It's not to say that you know Oklahoma State doesn't play hard for Mike Gundy or Wisconsin doesn't play hard for Paul Chris. It's just, you know, looking at that team, I feel like Oak, Iowa State is better than you would think they would be, whereas, you know, the profile of Wisconsin, they've been good. You know, they were good with Gary Anderson. They were certainly really good with Bielema, and obviously they were good with with Barry Alvarez. Yeah, they've been they've been consistent for 25 years, so I get why. I mean, what was, Gary Anderson was like 19 So I get why they, there. you know, whoever the coach is is going to get overlooked. I just think that we shouldn't take it for granted. I think that uh, they're having a particularly great run right now. You remember they went into the Big Ten title game undefeated two years ago. I know it was against a soft schedule, but that's still... That's still really good, and then um, they they you know they gave Ohio State as tough a game as anybody did before the playoff uh, in the Big Ten title game. Hang on, I just uh, by the way, I just noticed something. You have no Pat Fitzgerald in your top twenty-five. Well, you don't either, do you? No, I don't. But I mean, that is like that is near and dear to your heart. That's well, and they've gotten rid of your offensive coordinator that you loathe. I think so. on the whole, again on the whole. Pat Fitzgerald has had an amazing run there. Um, I think he is coming off a season that would kind of be the definition of bad coaching. Like they didn't have a single quarterback prepared. <laughs> they went three and nine. Uh, they were they were they were terrible. There's no other way to put it. And I didn't want to say this much at the time because you don't want to rain on anybody's parade. But the year that two years ago when they won the division, the reality is they weren't very good that year either. Um, they lost all their non-conference games that year. They had a lot of, you know, last-second wins that you can sometimes chalk up as being kind of a little bit of luck involved. So, I mean, it's not like he's far from mind. He, he barely missed the cut, but no. And it looks like that's the case for you, too. Like he was one of your first ones out. Yeah, he was my first one out. Well, a similar situation is David Shaw. Um, David Shaw, to me, if you were to say who were the best coaches of the last decade, he would be probably top five. He won... Three Pac-12 titles in four years, I believe. He averaged almost 10 wins a year. But over the last couple of years, they've started to regress, slipped down into eight-win territory, and then last year bottomed out. I think they bottomed out at four and eight. So I knew I was going to drop him. I didn't know how far. Um, he ended up 21st. Mike Leach, 20th, him 21st. You didn't drop him quite as far. I didn't. I thought I would. I thought I would have dropped him further, but I just didn't. I have him at seventeen. I think he was like twelve or thirteen the year before. Um, Leach at twenty. I'm surprised he's that low. I know he's he's nuts, but <laughs> it's not because he's nuts. But he is. Man, you know, like here's the thing, and I, I'm not even going to bring up the part about I brought this up earlier about the impact he's had on the game. So Leach had Texas Tech in the top. They finished in the top 25, five of his last seasons in Lubbock. They haven't been in the top 25 in the decade since he left. 
you had Tuberville, whatever he was doing there, and then Cliff couldn't get it going, and then Matt Wells the past year, you know, is is in a rebuild. They haven't been in the they haven't had a top twenty five season in the last decade since, right? So then he goes to Wazoo, and they are horrific. They are won nine games in their four years before he got there, and he gets them a top ten season, the first time they'd ever won eleven games, you know, and so I don't know. I mean. It's hard for me not like there are not 19 better coaches than Mike Leach. There are there are certainly more than 19 more normal coaches than Mike Leach, but there are not 19 more better coaches than Mike Leach. So obviously all those things you said are correct, and that's why he is in my top 25 in the first place. I actually had him in the top 10 last year, I believe, or close to it. You think Mark Stoops and Jeff Munkin are really better coaches than Mike Leach? Better coaches right now. Um Last season didn't bother you at all. It almost seemed like he'd thrown in the towel a little bit. He just wanted to get out of there, and I don't know. He he had some weird stuff going on with the with the defense, but I mean, I don't know. Like again, I don't want to. The other thing that bugs me a little bit about Leach, what like is a little bit of a um, downgrade, is just he kept getting his butt kicked by Washington every single year. That is true. Like, yes, they had a lot of success, but then it would come time to that game, they would get their butts kicked. After last year's game, a little bit of a uh, didn't really like the way he he tried to blame it on the fact that Washington has better recruits. Of course, that would be a reason why. Um, yeah, I didn't, they lost that game sixty-seven to sixty-three to UCLA last year. Uh, I, I don't know something about last season, not just having a mediocre record, but just the way it all happened. Gave me a little bit of a sour taste. But, okay, that's fair. Um, I mean, I asked you to, I asked you to defend it, and you did. So now I'm going to ask you to defend something. Okay. Chip Kelly was an amazing college football coach at Oregon. Nobody could ever deny that. But that was now eight years ago. He has had a brutal first couple seasons at UCLA after a brutal NFL run. You still have him among the top 25 coaches. Defend yourself. Yeah, and I dropped him quite a bit. I had him in my top 10. He is now 23rd. Um, he had an amazing run at Oregon in four seasons. The first two years at UCLA have not been good. They're seven and seventeen. Uh, but even if you factor that in, you know what his career record in Pac-12 play is? Even with the UCLA stuff, uh, it's probably still well over five hundred. Yeah, it's well over five hundred. It's forty and fourteen. Because actually, the last couple years at UCLA. You know, they went 0-3 out of conference both years. They played a brutal schedule. And then they were actually 500 Not awful in, in conference right? play. Yeah. yeah, it's like what happens is they play a really rough schedule. I think he's in the middle of a rebuild. Um, you know, look, there's definitely... I am not as convinced that he is going to have them going to the... You know, I thought they would be a top 15 team this year. I don't. I can't say I'm that confident they will be this year. I think they'll be a. I think they'll be a lot better. I think they'll be a bowl team, but I don't know. I mean, it's not. You know, I think I may have told you this offline before, but I remembered we had uh, we had UCLA like a week three in our schedules on our horizon, but we had Stanford in the opener against your alma mater, and I went up to Stanford on like a Monday with Brock Hewer, and we watched them, and I was like, oof. These guys don't look that great. And then I saw UCLA a couple of days later, and I was like, I thought UCLA was better than they were because I had compared them to Stanford, and I didn't know Stanford was a four-win team. And it kind of skewed me a little bit. You were right. I that. mean, they UCLA beat Stanford last year for the first time in 
like 10 years. So um, that turned out to be correct. But yeah, I just, uh, I think you, I think that, that number 23 next to Chip Kelly is just blind faith on your part. In fact, you gave me some crap earlier about having Cristobal so high. You have Chip Kelly 23 and Mario Cristobal 24. The, the guy number 24 just won the Pac-12. The guy number 23 is is been i know but this doesn't happen just i I don't think we're just operating in a vacuum where it's like who just had the best season last year again i think it's who who has had the best recent i don't think these people forget how to coach how how long are you mm, they don't forget how to coach but every coach and i don't know i this could go either way with chip maybe this is the year they break through I, I mean, so, if, I, I, so I tend if, to think so. If Munkin goes, let me ask you this. Yeah. So if Munkin goes six and six at Army, he's completely out of your top twenty-five then. Next year, yeah, he would be. And if Mark Stoops goes seven and six or six and five, he goes from sixteen off the board. I don't know that that one we'd have to, because because with with Munkin, you're talking about now two straight bad seasons. I, I so don't your know. threshold is you give him a mulligan for one. Yes, but I definitely give you a mulligan for one. Um, but when it's two or even three, because look, lots of coaches think of Mac Brown, think of Les Miles, like lots of coaches who are really, really good eventually hit a plateau and never come back from it. And you're convinced Gary Patterson is not in that situation. I'm kind of starting to think he might be, uh, like it all happens to them eventually. So it's, there's no, there's no right answer. There's no, like, what's the magical number? Like of how long you should like how long does Chip Kelly keep getting credit for what he did at Oregon, which is now eight years ago? How long does Jim Harbaugh keep getting credit for what he did with Stanford and the 49ers? Uh see that 49ers Super Bowl year was also eight years ago. Like I don't know, what's the expiration date on past accomplishments? All right, Stu. All I know is Andy Staples, you're on notice. If you write one bad story, Stu is gonna make sure you cannot expense the next meal you go out on the road for. <laughs> Eh, one bad story is fine. <laughs> Two bad stories come into my office. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding, Andy. Just kidding, everybody. Um, okay, real quick, one last guy that neither of us had in there. I didn't really, frankly, consider him all that much. I don't know if you did, but our editor noticed this, Dan Uthman. Gus Malzahn. You know, I looked, I considered him, but I looked back and it's, you know, since the since that run against Florida State to get to the title game, he's barely had one, one double-digit win season. And... I don't think he's a bad coach, but it's just like, honestly, it was like the the guys I thought of, I thought of Mark Stoops, I thought of Harson, Luke Fickle, Pat Fitzgerald. I didn't think of Gus Malzahn that closely. I mean, you know, like, I, I just didn't. I mean, maybe that's wrong. I mean, did you have any second thoughts on it? No, I... I the only The only thing that crossed my mind of like, maybe I should include him this year is that they did just beat Alabama again. And he's really the only coach that has had... Uh, he's now beaten Saban three times, right? Uh, very, very hard to do. But obviously, you don't judge a coach by that one game every year. and Well, you're judging Leach by, by Jimmy Lake kicking his ass. Well, so. in part, in part, yeah. And, and and certainly Harbaugh against Ohio State is a big part of his reputation. That Yeah, that is true. I frankly, actually, I mean, taking the rivalry part of it out... I actually think there are some parallels between with Harbaugh and, and Malzahn. I think they're both guys who do well enough to make noise and 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 be a factor, knock off some d- decent teams. But at the end of the day, uh, he he Harbaugh hasn't won a conference championship. 
Malzahn won his his first year and hasn't won one since. I mean, you kind of those are not programs that. I mean, this is not Iowa State we're talking about. These are programs that are fully capable of winning their conferences. So uh, that's why neither of them are in my top 25. Um, at this point, we are probably overdue in saying that you should read our actual rankings if you haven't already. Give me, uh, give me one coach who's not on your list. I'm not saying you were arguing for him, but you predict he will be on your list next year. Hmm... Oh, by the way, while we say this, we both have qualified no Ryan Day because Stu said you had to be there for two full seasons, and he's not, or else he would have been both our top tens. Just kind of like we just said about one season is a you know you don't weigh too much on one season, but two okay. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to read too much into one. Now, Ari Wasserman, Ohio State writer, would tell you Ryan Day is already a top three coach. I'm uh, I'm not ready to go there. Um, well, there's a you did a just missed the cut on yours. I didn't I didn't do that, but. Um, one guy you have in there that I could see being in there next year is Justin Wilcox. He's he's doing a good job at Cal, and I think that, first of all, if they hadn't lost their quarterback for a good stretch of last year, he may already be on that list because I think they would have had a much better record, and I think they're poised to have a breakout season this year, especially with most of the division around them uh, in flux. What about you? That's it. I mean, you basically said exactly the stuff I would have said, so. You also had Neil Brown on your dismiss the cut. I did. Neil's in a tricky spot because he took over a West Virginia program that was in total rebuild mode, and I can't see them getting – I think they'll probably be a little better, but I don't think they're going to be that much better. So I think think he's a terrific coach, but I think it's going to be a little while before you start to to see the fruits of that. By the way, not intentional, obviously, but after the fact, I realized that of the guys that dropped off my list from last year, and I think there were about nine – Three of them were Big 12 coaches, Mike Gundy, uh, Gary Patterson, and Tom Herman, actually, if you remember the good old days of last year when Tom Herman was still considered a hot coach. So that left only two in there, in um, uh, Lincoln Riley and Matt Campbell. But there are... Barely, barely Matt Campbell, by the way. Yeah, so you would look at that and be like, oh, wow, Stu doesn't think very highly of the Big 12 coaches. But I could see... I still have faith in Chris Kleiman. I still have faith in Mike Gundy, first of all. I've not lost faith in him. Uh, Neil Brown. Like, I think they actually have a good roster of coaches. Maybe Matt Wells will get in there. Uh, But just this is maybe a bit of a transition year there. We'd like to pause for a brief minute to ask you, our faithful listeners, to click on the show notes for this week's episode and follow the link that's there to a very short survey. You all know so much about us whether it's my love of Jimmy John's or Bruce's uh, shaving habits, (laughs) but we don't know anything about you. The survey is 11 super simple questions and will take you less than 60 seconds, I promise. So head to the show notes for today's episode and click on the link. And now back to the podcast. What do you say we get to the mailbag? Okay. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. This question from Tyler Hutchinson does give us a chance to address... A uh, pretty interesting story recently, which is um, USC's AD Mike Bone went on our buddy Ryan Abraham's podcast, USC podcast, the Peristyle podcast, and surprised a lot of people by basically saying, when Ryan asked him about, would you ever consider going independent or joining another conference, said, well, everything's on the table. And uh, and then Dennis Dodd, another friend of ours, followed up with him later, and he didn't really back down on that. Like, He's basically saying if Larry Scott doesn't get this revenue disparity thing figured out, like we're not 
we're not necessarily bound here. So Tyler Hutchinson from North Carolina asks, with given those comments, what is more likely in the next 10 years? USC leaves the conference to join a different conference. USC and other big schools go independent to keep their own revenue, or conference TV deals change in structure to compensate the biggest schools, USC, Ohio State, Clemson, similar to Boise State's deal with the Mountain West. So it's complicated, I think. Um, first of all, if USC was sitting there going, hey, we're going to go independent, they don't have the clout that they would have back when Pete Carroll had it rolling. Like This is a bad time for them to do that just in terms of where USC's profile is right now. They've had all sorts of issues uh, beyond football as well, so it's challenging. I think you look at Notre Dame's money, and it's not like, I don't think they have that kind of, I really don't think they have that kind of reach. If they did, I think the Pac-12 network would be positioned a little differently. So to me, it's, it's hard for them, I think, to make that push and try to leverage it. I mean, I get it, the Pac-12 is not in a great position either, but I, I don't think this is I don't think this is ideal timing for the USC to try to make that power play. Yeah, I don't think being independent. I'm sure that sounds very appealing. I know Texas fans fantasize sometimes about being independent. I don't think that is as realistic as people think. Notre Dame is able to do it because, first of all, they've been doing it forever. Um, and Notre Dame, like them or not, has a very very powerful national brand. And by the way, Notre Dame. You know, you think if USC is not happy with the money they're making the Pac-12, guess what? Notre Dame's making even less than that off their NBC deal. They just are a different kind of university that is, you know, has a different sort of uh, model for funding athletics. But, I mean, it's definitely, I definitely think that there's enough instability in the Pac-12 right now. There's, I mean, when you have many, multiple schools, ADs, have complained at one time or another recently about the conference, like, Andy Staples wrote it, right? He wrote the column saying, Big 12, go get them. Go get USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington. The hard part with that is just the other sports. Those are law. You know, the USC-Texas Tech game, you know, Graham Harrell might love it, but that's going to be a rough trip for them to get to love it. How about the USC-West Virginia game? West Virginia. I know. USC-Iowa State. And you're talking about football. It's like the the USC-West Virginia volleyball game on a Wednesday night. Um, I tend to think that, look, football drives the bus in this, and given how drastically and quickly technology is changing, I mean, I think a lot of people are wondering if this next go-round in a few years will even be like traditional TV deals. Will will streaming services be leading the charge? Will, will Apple want to be bidding on the rights to games? We just don't know. Um, I, I think you might start to see some situations where football gets separated out. Like, what? What? This is just totally hypothetical. But what if Netflix came out and said, "You know what? We want to buy the TV rights, the exclusive rights to USC football, Texas football, Ohio State football, Michigan football, etc." You guys can still play in your conferences and all the other sports and be part of their TV deals. We're just this is just going to be a football elite football package like that's where i could see usc breaking away from the pac-12 is if it was part of some bigger alliance with other uh blue blood football programs all right the next question from ran carlson as part of the new one-time exemption transfer rule why not include an exception to the 25 athlete scholarship limit per year as follows 
Every school is allowed to increase equal to the number of athletes that transfer out that academic year. What do you think of this, Stu? Um, sounds good in theory, except that that would just be a perfect excuse for coaches to oversign and run kids off. I mean, I think if that were the case, then if you're a coach, why wouldn't you just say, well, these are the 12 kids that I don't want anymore, so I'm going to push them to transfer and bring in 12, 12 kids off the transfer portal. Right. And so what happens now is, and I remember this came up with a coach I know at a high academic school who had pointed out, you know, if these kids um, want to go in the portal, they basically are now, we don't have to keep them on scholarship. It's like basically them saying all bets are off. And when it comes, and the reason why I mentioned the academic part of that is just, there's, you know, there's a lot of kids where we're going to, once they're into college, I'm not saying, you know, most, I think most college football recruits probably think I'm going to play in the NFL, but after you've been there probably for a couple of years and you kind of see the reality, if you're maybe it's not going quite as well, maybe you've gotten some, some different expectations and you're now realizing, am I going to give up this, this, uh, this potential degree for something I don't know, I don't, I, I may not have, and you lose whatever leverage you have. It's not to say the school can't can't pull out the rug since the scholarships are one-year deals but that's the part where I think it gets dicey and I agree with what you're saying where I think it just would give especially the schools on the higher ends of the food chain the ability to to leverage some of these kids and and take advantage of that in a big way and I think you'd have an even bigger gap than we already have now all right uh we're coming up on an hour here we're actually recording this pretty late at night so I think we're going to wrap um next week we will have more time to get to more emails, so please. We're actually not getting that many right now, so consider this your your um, your invitation to send us an email. With a very good chance it will be on the air next week. Theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy The Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash the audible that's 40% off your subscription to the athletic oh, yes. oh, yeah. oh, oh.